Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I read a lot of books for this podcast, but none have I devoured as quickly as the one we're talking about today. It's called Greetings from Utopia Park, Surviving a Transcendent Childhood. This is not a dry meditation guide. This is an extremely compelling memoir about growing up within the Transcendental Meditation Organization. Uh, Transcendental Meditation, also called TM, is practiced by many well-known people, including Howard Stern, the movie director David Lynch, Katy Perry, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, as well as many of my own friends and colleagues like George Stephanopoulos and Robin Roberts from Good Morning America. Uh, But my guest today, the author and journalist Claire Hoffman, grew up inside a remote community of, I guess we could say, orthodox practitioners, seeing a side of TM that isn't often discussed. To be clear, however, Claire has not penned some blindly negative tell-all, as you're going to hear as she unfurls her own story. Claire has a really nuanced and at times very surprising view of TM. Uh, Before we dive into all of that, though, a bit of a personal disclaimer on my end. This is a little bit of a tricky interview for me. Because discussions of meditation can often devolve into what I fear may be uh, non-constructive sectarianism. Uh, I practice a form of meditation called mindfulness meditation. uh, And the mindfulness people and the TM people sometimes sort of look down their respective noses at one another. In fact, uh, if I'm going to be totally honest here, some of my fellow travelers in the mindfulness world are openly suspicious of TM. I, however, uh, consider myself to be a non-combatant in these debates, largely because I simply haven't done enough research into TM yet, which is why I recently made the acquaintance of a guy named Bob Roth, who Claire knows very well, uh, who's a longtime TM teacher and the head of the David Lynch Foundation. And Bob is going to come on the podcast soon and answer all of my obnoxious questions. He's also going to teach me TM, at which point I think I'll be able to speak with uh, much greater authority. Anyway, enough throat clearing. Uh, Claire, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the book. It's really, really, really interesting. Well, I love hearing that. (laughs) It's your your first book, and I know the pain of publishing uh, a first book, especially one that's really personal. So, um, Thank you for saying that. I think as a journalist, you probably know that talking about your personal life is something you generally don't have to do. So it was a weird decision on my part. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you made the decision because I think people are going to learn a lot. And at the very least, it's a really good read. Um, So before we get into your personal story, let's kind of define terms a little bit. What is TM? TM is Transcendental Meditation, and it is a trademarked form of meditation that was brought to the West by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was a secretary for a um, sort of leading guru in India, and he had served him for years, and he was devoted to him. And when he died, Marishi went, or at the time his name was Mahesh, he went to a cave and meditated, as the legend goes, for three or four years and came out with this idea of giving the world meditation, uh, you know, the idea was that before that, meditation was something you practiced in caves or it was something done by just a religious class of people. And he talked about giving it to the householder class, right? This was like a big kind of fresh idea in the late 50s, early 60s. And he started traveling around India and teaching sort of business people, regular people to meditate. And then he came to America. Some listeners may know him listeners of a certain age, because he was the guru briefly for the Beatles. 
Yeah, it, it, by the mid to late 60s, he was just this huge pop culture figure. He was on the cover of Time and Life, and, you know, he's on the Johnny Carson show. And, yes, he the Beatles went and spent, you know, I think a month. They were different Beatles, different amounts of time, different stories about what happened there. But they were in Rishikesh with him, and I believe it was 1968. And how do you do... TM. Would you, you, am I going to teach you? No, no, well, you can if you want. (laughs) I actually can't. I'm not allowed to. I'm sure Bobby will tell you that. Okay. Bobby, by the way, is Bob Bob Roth. Yes. Everybody calls him Bobby. Everyone calls him Bobby. He's much more of a Bobby than a Bob. (laughs) Uh, uh, You sit down quietly for varying amounts of time. Usually they say about 10 to 20 minutes and just say a mantra that's somewhat unique to you inside your head. So it's a word or a phrase that you repeat silently inside your own head. Yeah, it's a syllable or multi-syllable sound. And to be clear, mantra meditation has been around for millennia. Yes. And so when you said at the top that that uh, this is a trademarked form of meditation, it is. A, it was a pre-existing form of meditation that the Maharishi kind of put his stamp on. He trademarked it. But but people can do it's Vedic, which is sort of the term for ancient. Right, Indian there is meditation. something. There's like a sort of competing group that's that they 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 offer something called Vedic meditation, and it, I've heard it's similar. Okay, or if you were to sit and learn meditation from Deepak Chopra, as I have actually. Oh yeah, he, it's a mantra meditation. It is a mantra meditation. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Deepak began as 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 Maharishi's doctor. Right, and then they Had fell a big out. Falling yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, according to Deepak, he was sort of like the heir apparent. And in f- where I lived, he became somebody who was like erased from the record. Okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves because okay, I, I wanted to start. There's so much <laughs> I want to ask you about. Um, uh, so, TM, just to establish the basics for people, is this mantra based form of meditation that is different from. And it's derived from Hindu meditation, or it is Hindu meditation, depending on your view. Um, and mindfulness is derived from Buddhism, and yes. it is not, uh, you don't use a mantra. You're, usually you start by just being aware of the sensations of your breath coming in and going out, and then every time you get distracted, you begin again. Yeah. Um, and we could say much more about that, but that would delay us even further from hearing your story. So how did you and your family get into TM in the first place? Well, my parents met at a Transcendental Meditation Retreat in 1974 in California. My mom was from Princeton, New Jersey, and my dad was from Santa Cruz. And they met and fell in love and got married and had my brother. And, you know, for my mom, she was very devoted. She really loved Marishi. She was really into TM. Uh, My father was already sort of battling alcoholism, and he gone to this retreat to kind of clean up, but he didn't tell my mom that. Uh, so pretty... He went to the retreat where they met. Yes. Up, I see. And, and pretty soon it became apparent that he had a drinking problem. So we moved around. He was a, a writer and we were living in New York and uh, he, he just sort of disappeared. Uh, he left one day and he was gone for six years. <laughs> Um, that's mm. a dark humor laugh. Sorry. Uh, and... No, I get it. I, I don't want to spoil the book, but the people, because I want people to buy it and read it. But your discussion of this time is very well written and heartbreaking. Well, I don't. I don't want to break your heart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, it was it was a very hard time. And my mom, for her, I think at that moment where we're like totally broke, it seemed like sort of an obvious decision to kind of reconnect with the TM movement, which she had been so strongly attached to and passionate about before she got married. 
And coincidentally, around this time, Marishi had kind of come out with this formula, what he called the Marishi effect, where uh, he said that if people who were practicing his trademarked advanced forms of meditation in large groups could create world peace. So it kind of changed the game a little bit, where before it had just been meditating for yourself. Now he was saying meditating together creates world peace, and it kind of shifted the movement into like a more utopian movement where they're trying to change the world instead of changing themselves. And he had bought this bankrupt university in Iowa and asked everyone to move there and practice meditation together. So that's what we did. How old were you when you moved there? Five. How old were you when you started doing TM? Three. So what was that? How did that go? How did you, how do you teach a three-year-old to do TM? They have an initiation ceremony. It's a different kind of, it's also a mantra um, but you don't have to sit down and close your eyes. You can walk around and sort of like color or look out the window. And it's short. It's like for five minutes. So you would just do kid stuff while repeating this word to yourself internally. Yeah, and I loved it. It was fantastic for what, me. Why did you like it? I think, you know, I mean, our life felt very chaotic. I you know, knew that there was a lot of stress for my mom and just things felt very precarious. So I think for me, TM gave me this space kind of of separateness, like away from the world a little bit. Um, And it felt kind of magical, frankly, like I, you know, there's a lot of sort of magic in learning it. And you're told it's like almost like a secret power. And it's going to make you powerful. And I totally believed all of that. Did it, uh, aside from the the, the stuff they tell you about its magical powers, did you actually feel different while doing it? Did it have any sort of psychological or physiological effect on you that you were aware of? It's I, This is sort of the question about meditation in general for me is because I've been meditating so long, like I don't actually know what it's like to not be meditating. Uh-huh. I mean, I've taken breaks for years at a time, but I think meditation has just been part of who I am forever. It's hard but, to know if you've derived any benefit. But I from. do think I have magical powers, if that's your question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there, there's some magic... Uh, um, promised here, which we will get to. Um, so you move out to Iowa. Where is it again in Iowa? It's in southeast Iowa. It's like an hour southeast of Iowa City. It's very rural. And how many people were living there? You know, it was a town probably when we moved there of maybe 7,000. And Marishi asked 7,000 people to move there. So there was a point where it almost doubled the population of the town. And, uh, you know, right now it's a, a little under 10,000. So these are the true believers. This, this is a different crew than the sort of bold-faced names that we see talking about TM publicly, you know, Lena Dunham, Katy Perry, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, as far as sort of TM goes, I think this real contraction happened in the late 70s when Marishi announced this idea of the Marishi effect of this idea of people meditating together. It was at the same time that he also announced that he was going to give a special technique that could make you fly. And I think those kind of two things really didn't jive <laughs> the mainstream. So and it, they, he, the, the flying technique, as it's called, you know, it's part of a larger program of something called the cities. And cities is, is basically an ancient Indian word for powers. Yes, powers. So it, it you can find old advertisements from the time that, that Marishi created that said, like, give you the strength of an elephant, walk through walls, power of invisibility, and flying. Gotcha. Yeah. And your mom believed this? My mom believes this. Still believes this? My mom lives there. Still? Yes. Lots of people still live there and believe it. 
So does she have the strength of an elephant? I find her very powerful. <laughs> She's a powerful lady. <laughs> Can she fly? Uh, in terms of what flying is, you know, I think she has powerful experiences doing something called yogic flying. It is not a beautiful thing to see, though. It is not soaring around the room, sadly. What What is it? <laughs> it's kind of like frog butt hopping across the floor on pieces of foam, usually, or on a mattress. So do you think it's baloney, or is there something there to, I, to it? Well, so part of my book is that I go back, and I, I learned... Um, I learned the TM City technique about five years ago. When I lived there as a teenager, I wasn't allowed to learn. Well, first of all, it's extremely expensive. It's like $6,000. Uh, so I couldn't have afforded to learn. But I also was like deemed a bad kid, so I wouldn't have been allowed to learn. And even when I went back, you know, as a 34-year-old and a mother, yes. Wait a second. You have to pay to do this? Oh, yeah. Well, you pay for TM in general. This is usually one of the bones that people pick about. Okay, so I know you have to pay for TM. That's yeah. one of the things I talked about with Bob slash Bobby, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about it on the podcast when he comes on. But, 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 so you have to pay for all these sort of varying levels of teachings. Yes, yeah. There's the advanced techniques. You know, most people. I, so to kind of come back to your question about the celebrities and these people who are out there talking about TM, they're talking about the twenty minutes a day, basic TM, which is the original sort of product, if you will, that Marishi came out with. And people find it very effective. You don't really need to believe anything or have any kind of larger philosophy about life in order to practice it. And so what you see in terms of people talking about TM is just people who like doing a mantra-based meditation, and they like the TM version of it. The people that moved to Fairfield believed in this bigger cause, this sort of big utopian idea of meditating together to create world peace. And most of them were practicing this advanced forms of TM. Let me just take it down a tributary for a second. Um, back to what I was saying in my overly long disclaimer at the beginning here. Um, well, first of all, about TM, uh, because people ask me about it all the time now that I'm this... Meditation expert. You know, I don't know about expert, but definitely evangelist. Okay. So I get asked about it a lot, um, and I've always kind of struggled with what to say. What I know we can say for sure is that there, there appears to be pretty good science that shows that it's good for you. And I think we can also say it's an ancient technique while trademarked by the Maharishi. I mean, it goes back thousands and thousands of years. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of validity. To, and when you see these bold-faced names get up and talk about the benefits, I think they're standing on pretty firm ground. However, do you think they know about the kinds of stuff you're talking about in your book? And if they did know, do you think that would be problematic or... Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. Oprah has has come to Fairfield. She did a, a show on Fairfield, and uh, that's where that's that's where. this is the town that yeah. I that grew up in. So, and she knows about the people who meditate together in domes and people practicing the flying technique. I know that she knows about that. I think they just see a division between that and this. But I would say, you know, like does. I guess I've interviewed Katy Perry, and she didn't really know about Fairfield, or she'd kind of heard a rumor of it. It's just sort of this, like, mythical, strange place that, to them, has nothing to do with it. I also think, like, TM has changed a lot in the last five years. So I have friends who learned TM five years ago, and they'll say, oh, like, we had to watch all these tapes of Marishi talking and whatever, and it's boring. And then friends who've learned in the last year, and I say, hey, did you watch tapes of Marishi when you learned? And they're like, who's Marishi? And I did a story for the New York Times Magazine three years ago, I think, or I don't know how many years ago, three or four years ago. And 
when you go into the offices of the David Lynch Foundation, there's no pictures of Marie mm-hmm. anywhere. It's of David Lynch and Jerry Seinfeld and Howard Stern. It's these big sort of celebrities. Like the sort of Indianness, the guruness is being sort of pushed away. Do you think and this is the type of whisper you hear in the sort of mindfulness world, that there's some strategy, a celebrity strategy. Because Bob Roth, who's the guy who teaches all the celebrities, vehemently denies that. That there's a celebrity strategy? To, to recruit celebrities to make TM more popular. The idea that that's not a strategy is crazy to me. Like, how can you how can you plain face deny that? That's bananas. Of course it's a strategy. But, I mean, it's a strategy for bottled water, too, at this <laughs> point. So mm-hmm. it doesn't seem that unusual. So, and I think in fairness, on on a couple of levels, you know, while mindfulness is, uh, and I'm I'm a died in the wool mindfulness practitioner, I'm a Buddhist. The, if you scratch uh, on Buddhism, you're going to find some pretty, you're going to talk, you're going to find claims about, well, they call them itties or cities too. You're going to find claims of powers and yeah. um, you're going to find also metaphysical claims, all sorts of stuff that I think the modern scientific world would find a little questionable. Uh, also, there are plenty of celebrity mindfulness practitioners. There just isn't a mindfulness group. There isn't right. a, uh, some sort of organization that get makes any money off of it. Or yeah. any, I mean, look, I well, having said that, I run a company that teaches people how to meditate through an app. So you know, we are you making we, bank? We're not making a lot of money at all. <laughs> but I mean, theoretically, we yeah. But there isn't some central right. organ right. that is making. So I, that that seems to me to be the difference. But this is where I get hung up on a lot of this stuff about TM versus mindfulness, because if I want to be fair about it, and I do, some of the charges that you hear leveled against TM, you could direct toward Buddhist meditation. Yeah, I don't know enough about Buddhist meditation to to say specifics about it. I think all spiritual religious organizations have skeletons in their closet. And, and, you know, I've been asked... Why are you talking? Like, I still meditate. So why am I talking about this? And do I think meditation is a good thing? I do. I think it's great for people. Um, So why talk about what happened in the 80s and 90s when I would say this group became kind of fundamentalist, you know? And it was really a point in time. And that's something I think Bobby and I agree about, that this was a point in time. It It was a place where things got strange. I think that for me writing this book, there's a lot of lessons about the way that people think about themselves and think about spirituality. They think about enlightenment, the way that groups work. Like, I think it's important to examine it. And I think the TM movement kind of has to acknowledge that this stuff happened, acknowledge that it got like this in order to move on. And there's certainly people, I mean, first of all, Utopia Park's still there. There's certainly people who That was are, the official name for the place? Uh, Utopia Park was the meditator-only trailer park on okay. campus. Okay. Um, but, you know, there's Vedic City, Iowa. There's people who are still really pursuing Marishi's vision of an ideal Vedic society. And, you know, I think that's fine. That's like almost sort of like, like a radical core. And I just think if you're going to move past it or kind of move on or advance or go to the next generation, then you have to kind of look at the mistakes of the first generation. Fair enough. So how strange did it get? When we come back... experienced something powerful and kind of cosmic, and then I hit my head on the wall. Stick around. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. 
My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. There's a new answer for people in need of serious pain relief. Lidocare has created a -a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. So, how strange did it get? <laughs> um, it got pretty wacky, you know? I mean, what happened was, Murray, she didn't live there, so he would telecast in all the time, right? So we would have these big celebrations all the time. We were always celebrating and fundraising. Those were sort of like a constant cycle. And Murray, she would telecast from India and then later on from Europe, and we would all gather together in these big golden dome buildings and listen to him. And because he wasn't there, but people loved him so much, and he was this guru, his knowledge was this, like, commodity, right? So it was this very kind of Wizard of Ozzy thing where people were constantly 
quoting and saying like, well, Marishi says this, Marishi says that. I, I mean, I went to the Marishi School of the Age of Enlightenment. and That was the name of the school. That was you, the name of the okay. elementary school. And, you know, our teachers were constantly saying, well, Marishi says to do this, don't do this. This is his favorite color. You know, I mean, it became a total cult of personality. And, you know, over time, Marishi started more having more and more knowledge. Uh, so that knowledge often turned into businesses. So, you know, he had Maharishi Ayurveda, which was the medicine and health. There was Maharishi Stapachaveda, which is the uh, buildings and houses and design. There was Maharishi Gandharva Veda, which was the music that you were supposed to listen to all the time. And so it was like every aspect of life had a sort of Maharishi's knowledge wrapped around it, things that you were supposed to do. And those were usually things that were commodified. They were products to buy. At what point did you start to rebel against this stuff? I had a moment when I was 12 years old, it, you know, and it was a, there was a lot going on that kind of led up to this. I mean, I definitely, when I saw flying for the first time, I started to have real questions. And then my dad came back into my life. Um, he moved back to Iowa. He got sober. And he was kind of critical of what was going on, which was the first voice like that that I was hearing. And But my moment was in November of 1989, we had a school assembly, and the school administrator was on stage weeping with joy because we had torn down the Berlin Wall with our meditations, and it was just sort of clicked for me, like, that's just, it's not true. I know it's not true. And after that, I became increasingly rebellious, and I had an older brother who was kind of rebellious, so I had a lead to follow. Mm. Um but yeah, so it meant sneaking out and drinking and partying, um, which it's a very small town and a community that's very sober and very interested in living an ideal life. So it was um, it was a contrast. You have said in at least one of the interviews that I read with you subsequent to, to writing the book uh, that the publishers pressured you to use the cult word. Now, you said cult of personality, but did, did, did they try to pressure you to call this religion or organization, whatever you want to call it, a cult? Oh, I think what you're referring to, that I, it was actually an editor for um, a magazine. I had worked on uh, this. I had worked on a story for so Rolling, not the publisher. Interesting, Rolling Stone quoted that, but I was telling them it was a, it was a Rolling Stone story I had gotten assigned about TM, and they ended up killing the story because I wouldn't say it's good or bad. They wanted, at the end, they were like, you either need to say it's a cult or not a cult. And I was like, I don't have that answer for you, which people don't like. I don't mind it. Okay, cool. Hey, Ambiguity is fine on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I believe, yeah, this is I, this is a very ambiguous book, which I do think frustrates people. But to me, it's a much more accurate reality. No, I think it's part of the, the power of the book, personally. Um, so your mom still lives there. What does she think of the book? You know, she doesn't, it's not so much the TM stuff that she doesn't like, which is to say that she doesn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think she, it was hard for her to read about some of the struggles that our family went through. I think she's embarrassed. Yeah, well, I, I, I get it, but and it's hard to say that, I mean, it's hard to say that the, your father leaving was her fault. Yeah, I think probably, you know, I mean, you know how we are as 
people, we tend to blame ourselves for things. And I think Mm -hmm. she saw a lot of this as her failures. But she's never said, you know, don't write about the TM movement. Don't don't voice your opinion about it. I think she has questions about it. She has concerns. I mean, the community has really changed now. It's much more um, gray kind of in every sense. First of all, everyone's gotten a lot older. So it's all these baby boomers who are now in their 60s. And people will, st- like my mom still practices three to four hours a day of meditation. Wow. But she doesn't go to the dome very much. What's the dome? So you mentioned that before. Yeah, the dome. There's two domes, a men and a women's dome. And they are big dome-shaped golden buildings where people fly together. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> so she meditates on her own but not in the dome. Um, is she a, a true believer? or what, what, You say she still has some doubts. Where, is, where does she stand vis-a-vis the organization? Uh you know, I think she just got tired of the organization. She got tired of the restrictions. You know, they had um, like a special department that would approve your badge. Your badge allowed you to get into the dome. And there would always be these like fears if you went, like were found out that you were doing some sort of self-improvement or going to see another Indian guru that you would you would have your badge revoked. Oh, oh, that's right. In the book, you talk about the fact that she actually took you kind of in secret to see another Indian guru. Yes, and that's not okay. Verboten. Yeah. Which... In fact, talking about this right now, I'm hoping my mom never hears this because that is like still an issue, which is crazy. So the Maharishi felt competitive or his yes. follow- or the people around him felt competitive? Uh, you know, I mean, one of the big questions in this book for me, you know, when I started writing it, I felt pretty angry at Maharishi. I felt like he was... Um, somebody who who did something bad to us. And I would say by the end of it, I felt like he, it was us that had done it, if that makes sense. Like it was sort of more the mass uh, effect, right? Of, of, you know, he was just sort of throwing stuff against the wall and what we did with it was our own fault. Mm. So, you know, does my mom, my mom probably doesn't blame Marishi. My mom loves Marishi. Still. Yeah, so t- so there's definitely a, a large amount of people who will say, you know, it wasn't Marishi was he was perfect, he was enlightened. It's just his organization that became problematic. So, do you think? Do you have any firsthand knowledge of whether the Maharishi himself got upset if his followers consulted other gurus, or do you think it was just the administration that? that I mean, overall? I've heard that. I've interviewed Deepak, who felt like you know that Maharishi became competitive with him. And that's why he had to leave. I mean, I think Deepak says and has written that once he started to become successful, when his first book came out, Marishi asked him to stop sort of promoting himself and fall in line. And he said he wouldn't. And that was it. It was over. They never spoke again. Did you, you did a lot of research on the Maharishi in the course of this book. Did I you did. come to a view on what his motivations were, whether he was enlightened, et cetera, et cetera? I find the idea of enlightenment absurd. I don't know where you're at with that. It depends how you define it. Yeah. I mean, the idea of enlightenment that I grew up with, which was this sort of elevated consciousness, sort of no human feeling, omniscience, powers. No, I just don't believe in it. Yeah, I don't believe in that either. Okay, what do you believe in? I don't know. I think there's uh, the, the, the way enlightenment is talked about, what's well, talked about in a lot of what 
here's the thing I've started to say recently, which is that as soon as you start talking about enlightenment, you're in an argument because people have a million different def de definitions of it. Traditionally in the Buddhist world, it's defined as the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion, but it happens in a stepwise progression. And uh, I know a lot of serious people, including scientists, prof business professionals, who feel that they've uh, achieved part of that. Um, that doesn't mean they don't feel greed or hatred or confusion about reality on a day-to-day -day basis. It's that they're feeling less of it, and they've had my, uh, breakthrough experiences that they believe are on the path. I I don't know. I don't know. But that's different from what you're talking about, some sort of perfection and omniscience. Although, you know, hey, if you read the, the Buddhist scriptures, the Buddha was described as having omniscience and all this stuff, and I have grave doubts about that. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a few sort of big motivating factors for me in writing this book, and one of them is this idea. I mean, this is kind of why I dredged up, to use my mother's word, uh, <laughs> a lot of our family history, because I feel like, you know, as people, as families, as individuals, we, you know, we suffer, we go, we have addictions, we have vices, we do bad things. And we feel so terrible about it that the flip side of the coin has become, you know, this idea of religion and restriction. Mm. And I'm, I'm pro, I like religion, but I do feel like it's this divide between like, you know, imperfect and human and perfect and divine. And I, I just don't think it's true. And I don't think it was true about Maharishi. I think, I think here's what I can tell you that I know about Maharishi. I think he was incredibly charismatic he had some kind of powers because if you talk to one of the 3,000 people who live in Fairfield who were followers of his, they will all tell you about some kind of personal encounter with them where they're practically weeping telling you about it. Like they love him. He was very powerful. Um, By power, you don't mean city. You mean just sort of Just charisma. power, yeah, yeah. charisma. Yeah. Uh, I think he was one of the more ambitious people that I've ever encountered you know, I mean, part of researching this book was going into the archives of the Maharishi University Library, and inside are just these, like, brochures and booklets and plans. I mean, he had a vision of this sort of meditation domination that is just, you can't, like, I can't underestimate how big theme it was. Theme parks. Well, obviously, theme parks are a big part of that, but, you know, tallest building in the world, libraries all over the world. I mean, there's... He has literature from the early 70s about open, opening 3,600 TM centers in every you know country and city in America in in the world. He's just extremely ambitious. But I think if you say to a true believer, Marishi was ambitious, that doesn't make sense to them because how can you be enlightened and be ambitious? Did you ever get to meet him? No. Um, were you ever in the same room with him? I was once in the same. He came to he came to Fairfield a few times, and he came once when we lived there. Oh, right. You talk about this in the book. Yeah. Is this the burp scene? Yeah. That's so funny. Everyone remembers the burp. He burped all the time. It was a weird thing. He just, I guess he was very free. But yeah, he, he sat up there on this little kind of golden throne that had been crafted for him on the stage in this giant shed building that had been built for these 7,000 people to meditate together. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it just, for me, it wasn't so much about him. It was about the people around them. Like, people were, like, having these incredibly powerful reactions to seeing him. And I felt the power of that. Um, 
Let's let's hash out this enlightenment thing again. Okay. So I, I actually I, I you believe? No, no. As the kids say, I pick up what you're putting down. <laughs> I, I I I hear you. I I just don't. Th- is it, I'm very much a, a work in progress on this. I don't. I I'm I'm deeply skeptical of like perfection and divinity. Yeah. So so I think in some ways um, I'm having a different discussion than you're having because right. you, you're. I think in your tradition or the way, at least the way you're seeing it, it was a much more binary thing. Whereas the idea that the mind is trainable and that over time uh, you can um, reduce the likelihood of negative emotions and reduce their and or reduce, reduce their power. That I find like maybe there's something to it. And I just know enough scientists who are sort of looking at, you know, the brains of advanced meditators and seeing that they are different, um, that I think there's perhaps something to it, but I don't know. I'm very much agnostic on it. But I think on the fundamental issue, you and I agree, which is setting up some sort of perfection, denying our basic humanity, and then making us feel bad about um, the things that we inevitably are going to do because our human birthright is... um, uh, uh, fallibility, um, that is an unhealthy dynamic. Well, but when you practice mindfulness meditation and you have thoughts, are you judging them as negative or positive? Uh, well, uh, I do all sorts of self-laceration while <laughs> meditating, but that's not necessarily the correct pract- practice. Right. You know? So the in mindfulness meditation, ideally, you would see a thought as just being a thought. Right. Or you could note it as being... Uh, aversion or or desire or something like that, but does, it sh- should be ideally devoid of judgment. Right. It's like your thoughts are supposed to be like the sound of birds in the trees, right? Or it's just little quantum bursts of mental energy. You know, they don't have value um, per se. Th- again, this is how it's supposed to be practiced. Easier said than done. Right. That that was always my challenge. Yeah. Um, I think, but I do think it's a skill you can develop. Yeah. I and especially when I go on a long retreat, I get much better at just seeing the contents of my own consciousness with some real, real non-judgmental remove, and that that has a value that is way beyond the theoretical because when I'm becoming impatient with my son or my wife or a colleague, I'm much less likely, well, I don't want to, I don't know about much less likely, I am less likely to get carried away by it. Uh, and that is, I think, where the rubber hits the road, or at least one of the areas where the rubber hits the road with mindfulness meditation. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think this is murky water, but it's, For sure. it's super interesting. So I do think, I feel like I saw something that can happen with this idea of like positive thinking, moving away from negative negativity, like mind mastery, where it just, it gets perverted. I think we're human and we pervert things. That's just sort of how it goes. So whereas you can say like, oh, it's, you know, people who tend to be, you know, write down five things they're grateful for every day, right? those people tend to be 20% happier, right? But living in a community where that was sort of the way it was supposed to be, what it turns into is a lack of the ability to express yourself Mm -hmm. and a lack of creativity Mm -hmm. and a lack of freedom. And I just think that the human experience is so complicated and ever-changing that to kind of start branding things positive or negative 
that process itself, I just, I actually think it isn't, it isn't good. I think I would tend to agree that that would, it was, again, because I didn't grow up in this community and I don't want to pass judgment on it without really first, firsthand knowledge, but what you're describing sounds problematic to me. Let me just say that. But the, in the, in the area that I have, do have some personal experience in, in Buddhism, the best teachers don't talk about squashing, um, right. your, what they would call shadow side. Um, they would, they would talk about becoming a connoisseur of your neuroses. Yeah. That's actually a direct quote from this guy Ramdas, who's yes. actually a Hindu teacher, not I a like Buddhist Ram teacher. Um, and, and so th- that's just more about being, becoming familiar with your own mind so that it, it doesn't yank you around. Yeah. And that I think is doable. And so and I know it's doable just from subjective firsthand experience. Um, and so again, that when the most compelling descriptions of enlightenment, which is such a loaded term, but if you knock it off its pedestal and talk about it in a much more grounded, earthy way, enlightenment is just the inevitable um, that you can just train yourself to get better and better at this over time. Yeah, I think that is beautiful and aspirational. I think here's even though you've not been to Fairfield, I think you have caught a whiff of what I'm talking about because you've probably gone to maybe a yoga class. <laughs> I've been to yoga class. Yes. <laughs> and you see that person who is acting like what they think enlightenment is supposed to look like, right? Or spiritual is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And let's just be honest, we all hate those people. I think, well, but if, if we all hated them, yeah. the yoga wouldn't be so popular. I think I, you and I certainly share an aversion to um, spiritual pretense. Yeah. And I think it's, that's just, for me growing up there, I saw people trying to be, trying to act like what they thought ideal was supposed to be. I mean, we had the ideal student award every month, right? Where you give in to the students who best embodied Maharishi's principles. And I just... You know, maybe I'm a really negative, cynical person. I mean, I don't know why I'm saying maybe. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) I am. Uh, And I probably have always been that way. But for me, living in a place where you weren't allowed to observe or remark or criticize, where everything had to be ideal, it it just starts to feel, yeah, like very Wizard of Ozzy. I mean, Utopia Park itself, you know, the name itself, a trailer park that is named Utopia. That's sort of like you don't even need to read the book. Is your you do need to read the book? <laughs> no, it's very kidding. interesting. Um, let me because your publicist is probably glaring at you right now for <laughs> I just saying made that. Eye contact. Um, so you you your does your mother actually live in Utopia Park? No, she doesn't. She moved out. She lives with her boyfriend on the other side of town. But I uh, I know people who live in Utopia Park still. Gotcha. And just to close the loop on your mom, she's practicing a lot, so she still believes in the value of the practice, and she still loves the Maharishi. Um, but has some problems with the administration. Yes. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah. So just as the, you know, you've got this big popular TM uh, movement, or TM, people getting really into TM these days, there is like a smaller, more radical core since Marishi's death that really are pursuing his vision. When did he die? 2008. Um, And so who's running the organization now? Um, I'm so excited for you to talk to Bobby about this. But before Marishi died, he appointed a king whose name is Raja Ram. King? I said king. I know you said king, but that was the word that was used, that was the title that was uh, conferred upon this individual? Raja. King. Which is... Yeah. uh, Um, His name is Tony Nader. There was Tony Nader before he became Raja Ram. 
he uh, rules in silence, I believe is the term that they use. So he isn't really out there in the world for people to see. He recently bought a $5 million property in Palm Beach, Florida. And I think he's sort of just behind the scenes involved with meditation. He was a quantum physicist and Maharishi loved quantum science. He uh, originally sort of came to prominence in the TM movement after he showed how quantum physics or used quantum physics to prove Maharishi's principles of living. I'm sure I'm butchering that, but basically, yes, showed that Maharishi's principles embodied quantum science or vice versa. And for that, he got his weight in gold. What? Yep. They put him on a giant scale. It's a fun video to watch. Mm. And, uh, what do I have to do? I know. Well, <laughs> probably get better at quantum mechanics. Yeah. I don't know. I got along. That's not going to happen. But he, there's a group of Rajas. Uh, so there's several kings? There's Raja Ram. He's the king of He's kings. He's the king of kings, exactly. And then there's a group of Rajas who I, you know, are mostly white men who are this like sort of council of however many they are, like 12 or 17. White men? Where are all the Indians? I, there's not a lot of Indians. There's like, there might be one or two. And so is it, is the home base in India or is it somewhere else? When Marishi died, he had his global headquarters in the Netherlands. So I think that is still the base. They do um, wear small gold crowns when they meet. Okay. Yeah. All right. You should ask Bobby about that. Okay, I certainly will. Um, I have to say, he was very open in yeah. our in our um, uh, in our. We had lunch the other day, and uh, I found him to be very non-defensive. About I everything love I Bobby. Threw. I okay. also think if you're going to find somebody to teach you TM, he is the guy. Yeah. He taught my daughter. He taught my husband. I think he's great at teaching TM. Okay, so this is this is per, the, you tee me up for the question I want to ask. So you just talk. You talk. You're pretty fair. Um, excuse me, sorry. You're pretty willing to talk in a in a s- critical way about TM, and yet you went back and uh, took the yogic flying class five years ago. You've 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 had your ki- you've had Bob Bobby teach your kids how to do it and your husband. So what is going on with all that? I. It's part of who I am. And I'm critical of aspects of it, but I'm not critical of everything. I'm not critical of the technique. I think it's great. I mean, I think meditation in general is great. I don't think you have to do TM. I've been doing TM my whole life. Um, My husband wanted to learn. I didn't make him learn. Um, But I did make my daughter learn. (laughs) You know, I think this idea of sort of hypocrisy or contradiction it's something to like be pushed against. So I think all these organizations have contradictory elements to them. And this process that I went through, I've found is a process that a lot of people I know who grew up in religious communities go through. So say I have a friend who grew up Mormon, right? And he lives in Salt Lake City. He's a reporter and he is a really bright and critical guy who has a lot of questions and, you know, reads books, Googles things and has a lot of questions about Mormonism and its history and what they're told. He's married to a Mormon woman. They have kids. And there's so much that he loves about that community and about um, his life there. But does he believe, you know, a lot of the things that were told to him? Does he have questions and criticisms about what's going on? Yes. And I think that that's like how you move these new religious movements or movements onwards is by asking those questions. 
So in some ways, I feel like I'm a bigger defender of TM than friends of mine that I grew up with who were like, just don't talk about it. Hmm. You know, because I think it's complicated, but by acknowledging that complexity, you're kind of acknowledging everything, you know? So I love meditating. I want my kids to meditate. For me, meditation is who I am. It's like my sense of self in the world. You know, it's my sense of the sacred. Uh, you know, and I want my daughter to have that. I feel like it would be weird if she didn't have that. How did you get back into it after your rebellion? How, 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 when did you stop and when did you start again? I, you know, probably by the time I was a teenager, my mom wasn't making me meditate anymore and I wasn't going to the Marishi school anymore. So I pretty much stopped meditating for a while. But, and I would say then for the next 10 years or so, I would just meditate occasionally, like if I was stressed out or if like I had a house guest, you know, like things to hide from people or on a plane. Um, Wait, you had a house guest you would meditate? Yeah, I think it's the best time to meditate. What does that Have mean? Have you even done this? Like if somebody's your house guest for a long time, just yeah. go, it's just, I just start meditating all the time to escape them. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Try it, try okay. it. Sorry, but now I'm outing my myself. Yeah. I consider him a house guest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he He's really destructive yeah. house guest. Well, it is interesting. I think after I had my daughter, that's when I started getting back into meditation. Uh-huh. Um, it really was parenthood. And I think, you know, I mean, it's a complicated thing. I think part of it was wanting to kind of pass on the sense of purpose and value that I had grown up with and also pass on this kind of legacy of meditation and this sort of idea of self as a meditator. But for me, you know, I definitely felt like something was missing. It, it was a real sense of shallowness that I experienced. Um, and it was confusing for me because I think I'd struggled for so long and just sort of felt like I was just trying to move away from the past. And then I found myself in a place where I was like, is this like I'm a normal person now? Is that what you wanted? Like to be normal? Like... You know, and what does that mean to me? That means just sort of watching TV and drinking. You mm. know, that's a normal person to me. Um, uh, I'm I gonna... hope the new normal becomes somebody who takes care of their mind the way we take care of our bodies and our cars and our home decor. Yeah, yeah. I'm being I'm being a little facetious, no, but that, I do. You're, 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 this is this is a friendly territory. <laughs> Irony of all variety. Um, just to make it clear, but I think. You know, I did. I was sort of like, well, wait a second. Like, I, I, I've kind of pushed all this stuff away and been critical of it, but I want, I want some of it back. I don't want all of it back, but I want some of it back. And I ended up going back for a month, when about five years ago, and uh, taking the TM City program, which includes the yoga flying course. Did you fly? I had a transcendent experience. Oh. I did. Um, Tell me more about that. Yeah, it was. It was. I sound like a shrink now. <laughs> I know what you do. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm starting to blush. Um, <laughs> damn it. Uh, they had a group of us, and people were sort of taking off and hopping, and I wasn't. And I was really wrestling with myself. Uh, you know, at this point, I'm meditating like seven hours a day, and I'm also like very, for a month. That part, you're, yeah. I mean, you work up to seven hours a day, but yeah. Um, and I had left my daughter with my husband, and I was just like very aware of the sacrifice that I was making and being away from her. And I felt very self indulgent for doing it. Uh, 
And then being there, it was like, well, I can't be critical. I signed up for this. I don't know if you know that feeling. Uh, you know it very well. <laughs> you know, but I, I have no problem being critical even though I signed up. Yeah, but it's such a it's such an annoying position to be in. Yeah, it's I'm annoying so, generally, so I'm fine with it. But that. you're annoying to yourself. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it's, everybody. Yeah. Well, no. As you can no, you know, no. having sat here and no, been interrogated I'm not, by I'm me, not annoyed. <laughs> I, I just I, I don't can't. know. Not, well, yeah. Uh, so I was I really wanted it, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't know how much of that was a factor, but I really wanted it to and, fly. Yeah. Even I, though you didn't think it was real. I believed that. People were having powerful experiences. So you you don't know whether they were defying the laws of physics or just having some sort right. of internal experience that felt like levitation. Yeah. I mean, my husband, even now, is like, I, we can talk about this, but you got to just not call it flying, okay? Like, it's it, it's embarrassing when you say those words, you know, which I, I understand. That's what people there call it. But do you think of it as breaking the laws of physics? Or no, do you think, okay. I don't. So you wanted some sort of internal transcendent I wanted, experience. I wanted this, I mean, I'd grown up for ever, not just with my mother, but everyone talking about how amazing this feeling is. Yeah. And I'd just been kind of hashing, thwacking through regular old meditation for three decades. So, you know? so what, what can you describe for me what the transcendent, moment was like yeah it's it was strange i mean i i had a girl kind of come up to me who was on my course you know who was a much more free-spirited person which is not easy (laughs) just kidding um and she she said uh you know she basically suggested like fake it till you make it like just sort of start moving a little bit and maybe it'll take off um and uh i did for um for sort of an instant um, and I kind of experienced like experienced something powerful and kind of cosmic, and then I hit my head on the wall, or actually it was on a pillar, um, and I realized that I'd moved like maybe three or four feet, and I'm sure it was like sort of a hideous, ugly thing, but it actually was this. So none of that is anything I would. I'm like greatly proud of or I'm telling you something incredible happened. I'm, I'm sure it was just probably like totally embarrassing to look at should anyone have been looking at it. But for me, it was um, this instant of feeling just sort of total oneness, darkness, like complete shut off of my brain, complete and something kind of just bigger and I, I started crying afterwards. and Not because you hit your head. No, I was fine. I mean, I was more, it was more like for seeing something so beautiful for a second and then having it go away. Uh, and, say, and realizing like, wait, it's there, but I, I'm not there. I'm back here. Like my brain clicked back on and I realized where I was and that I'd hit my head. And, and the contrast between those two was really harsh. Uh-huh. And then I felt also, though, this connection to my mom because I kind of understood, like, gosh, if if I could access and experience that all the time, wouldn't I keep trying to do that? Mm -hmm. And, like, would I move to some town in Iowa? And would I join large groups of people who are also pursuing it? Absolutely. Have you found yourself chasing the dragon? Are you trying to get back? No? Why not? It's a good question. People always say that when they don't want to answer the question. I, is, yeah. You're good. You're good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. Um, uh, I, 
you know, I came home afterwards and I, I practiced some of the cities. It's like 17 different mantras. And I, it, my meditation is much better after I did it. You know, I'm not on here evangelizing taking that course. But for me, it, it did change my life and made it like my meditation more powerful. Um, the Flying Sutra, to me, it's just, I mean, I could have a longer explanation of this, but it's it's kind of just too weird there's an idea with the cities, and I don't know if this is the same in Buddhism, where it's about going to like a transcendent layer and then using your mind to like alter reality, mm-hmm. right? And alter the physical. And I just don't know if I believe in that or want to do it. Oh, well, I have <laughs> definitely have trouble believing in it, but if it was possible, I would totally want to do it. I think that it, the kind of transcendent oneness that you pursue in Buddhism and that I kind of, is that okay for me to say? Do you believe what I just said? Well, uh, like I, I, I call myself a Buddhist, which I just think of as meaning somebody who does Buddhism. You know, like I don't, I don't believe in, <laughs> in I don't believe in uh, or have any personal experience with things like rebirth or anything like that. Right. I just practice Buddhist meditation, which my view makes me a Buddhist. However, it does not make me an expert in Buddhism. So, right. so I won't pass judgment on that comment. Okay. Well, I would just say sort of the non duality of life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not, I, there isn't separation between you and the universe. It yeah, is all one thing. If I buy into that. That's that's one of the few things I might buy well, into. I think it's almost like uh, undeniably <laughs> true, right? How can you be separate from the universe if you're created you're part of the universe? You're you're made up of atoms from the first exploding stars. I mean, we are one um on some important level. I just don't yeah. know I, I just don't know um I can't define or describe that level, and I haven't experienced it personally. Yeah. But I think it seems pretty obvious. And when you say you had a transcendent experience after a month of seven to eight hours a day of meditation, I don't find that surprising. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. I think the the Flying Sutra, just to close that, for me it feels like getting away from that bigger sort of experience. It's like kind of going into a corner and doing something weird. I see. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So you're basically saying that you, the value for you, the beauty for you in what you glimpsed there was a connection to everything yeah. as opposed to going off separate from everything and manipulating the laws of, of yes. the universe. Yes, yes. Am I saying that correctly? You are, okay. yeah. I, so, I don't know if this is interesting or if this just seems like Wiccan practices that we're talking about. Totally no interesting. Okay. No, this is what I. This is what we talk about on the show all the time. Okay, so okay. Um, yeah. uh, I haven't had a Wiccan on, but we would do that. That's um, my next summer project. That's, that's, that's yeah. your next book. Um, <laughs> I uh, No, I, I am obsessed with the idea of... Uh, there being something beyond 10% happier, right? I yeah. mean, I think there, I suspect there is, well, I know there's something beyond 10%. First of all, that doesn't mean anything. I pulled that on my rear end. Um, I know you can, I know there's more than just sort of uh, making yourself slightly calmer uh, and less emotionally reactive. Um, uh, I just haven't experienced it for myself. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, when I, your book came out while I was working on mine and I was grumpy about it because it's sort of my thesis where it's like meditation isn't going to solve everything. It isn't the answer to the world's problems, but will it make you a little bit happier? Yes. Yeah. But then somebody writes a book. <laughs> <laughs> so There oh, were a well. lot of books that came out when I was writing my book that I was very grumpy about. What were too. you the most grumpy about? Uh, there was a book. Uh, I'm going to have trouble remembering the name. It was something like... Uh, 
I think the subtitle was something like uh, Positive Thinking for People Who Hate Positive Thinking or oh. something like that. And it was by a journalist, a British journalist who lives here in New York. Huh. And I, my my literary agent sent it to me and I was really pissed off. Yeah. That, like, you know, why are you sending this to me? This is exactly what I'm yeah. trying to do. And it's totally, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, these are just mental games we play with ourselves. Absolutely. That's why it's strange to see you in person. It's great to see you in person. <laughs> uh, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I, it's a delight. Anything else that I should have asked you or that you want to talk about? Well, I think there is the idea of sort of cynicism versus mysticism yeah, that kind of goes that. through this book that I feel like I frankly would like to talk to you about in the sense that I want to hear what you think. I think they go well together, right? My view is is maybe not cynicism, but skepticism and mysticism, skepticism vis-a-vis mysticism. So you can have curiosity, but it's not an – I mean, so you can have um, skepticism, but it's not an incurious skepticism. So, right. so I suspect – I actually misspoke a little bit before when I said I know there's something beyond 10% happier. I meant like I suspect there's something beyond 10% happier, and uh, I'm investigating it in a – a pretty robust way, but I'm going to be a wise ass as I do so. And I think that's totally fine. I think those are, I think um, I find people who do this investigation without, in a more earnest way to be a a little annoying sometimes. Right. So I had a friend who is religious. I think he's, 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 um, he's Orthodox actually. He's Jewish. Mm -hmm. And he said this thing to me that has always stuck in my head that in order to have experience the cosmic you have to let go of logic that may be true it's very interesting a very compelling assertion um but then you talk to somebody like sam harris a neuroscientist and uh very very logical and has had you know has spent years of his life on meditation retreats and has has had all sorts of what he would describe as transcendent experiences and i don't think he's had to abandon logic yeah, I think that I felt like for me personally, logic had to be put aside. The critical thinking part of me had to be put aside in order to have that experience. What I suspect is that you have to let go. Right. Generally. Well, you ha- I don't know if you specifically need to let go of logic. I just fi- – I, I, my very nebulous early stage understanding of all of this is that – if you're going to have these experiences that were the mystical experiences that we're discussing, if they're real, that you are going to have to, it's like a deep unclenching. Yeah. But I find somebody like Sam Harris, who's so critical of religion, annoying, and also so not accurate, because of course, there's all these negative things about religion. I completely have my eyes open to that. I've lived through it. At the same time, that has been the gateway for so many people to these really big and powerful experiences. So who is it to say that religion is bad when half of it is made up of this incredible aspect? And, you know, he sort of pursues the dogma of religion or the sort of absurdist beliefs. And I find that, I don't know, I find it sort of like a gut punch. Like it's not it's not really what it's about. So you, it's like a baby bathwater argument. For baby you. baptismal water is yes, what we like there to you say. Go. Uh, yes. So, so, but have you read Waking Up? I have. Okay, so I mean, I, th- I th- the argument um, that he makes there is that, um, de- yes, d- religion uh, has been the gateway to these transcendent experiences, but um, 
but also comes with it, um, his, his argument here, also brings with it a lot of often damaging, destructive, dogmatic arguments. And so why not extract spiritual experience, for lack of a better phrase, from its uh, metaphysical um, context and um, and and pursue it in a modern scientific context. I think that's like the best possible way of describing Sam Harris, like the most positive. But I mean, <laughs> I find it like so annoying the way that he sort of just completely goes after people who are religious and then writes this book, Waking Up, I have interviewed him. Um, and we didn't we didn't really see eye to eye. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, he writes this book and in it he offers different meditation techniques like, hey, pretend you don't have a head, which I tried. It's cool. It kind of works like it kind of works. But I can totally make fun of him for that the way he makes fun of religious people all over the world for their crazy thinking. But, but pretending Why you don't is... have a head, uh, I mean, I, that's based on a book called On Having No Head. Right? It's, called, <laughs> it's called Zen and the Art of and the, and the Rediscovery of the Obvious. Um, and it, the argument there is that from your perspective, from your own perspective, you don't have a head. Like you, there's just the world and maybe a, bl a smudge of where your nose should be. Right. right. So that is a compelling argument. It actually is divorced from metaphysics. So Sam, I think his point, and I don't want to make you uncomfortable here because Sam is a friend of mine, okay. but I don't mind people criticizing him. He doesn't mind people. I think he, he, he loves engaging in no, these he, kind he, of. He, he does mind, but yeah. Oh, well, he yeah, maybe he does mind. But he does engage in a, he puts himself in a position to have he entangles himself in all sorts of debates all the time. So uh, in that sense, he's used to it. Um, right. So anyway, you're not in trouble with me for for criticizing his Thank ideas you. and nor I, I suspect are you in trouble with him. But um, uh, so I, I guess I would defend him on the ha on having no head thing. Right. Well, I, I'm just saying you can kind of pull quote any religion or any book or any belief or faith or pursuit and make it look stupid and absurd. Right. Like you could say like, hey, you think you can fly? You're an idiot. I, I totally get that. But for me, I think I'm a pretty logical, skeptical person who was pursuing a personal transcendent experience. And so for Sam to act like, these like billion people on earth who believe these different faiths are invalid and idiots is idiotic to me. That's all. Fair enough. I'm, I, I, I guess the only, uh, the only, I'll just speak for myself, which is that I just find the idea that there are experiences that we can have of our own mind that be, that transcend the mundane. Yeah. Um, I, I think you can I suspect you can talk about this and and experience it and pursue it in a way that doesn't involve subscribing to metaphysical claims that are immune to proof. Um, and so I find that very, very compelling. Um, I don't know if that that puts me four square in Sam's camp or not. I just think he and I agree there. And I suspect you and I agree, too, on this. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think that having lived in a place where we believed unbelievable things and seen how that belief completely shaped our reality and made it true, it made it true. We lived it. Like, I know what it felt like to believe, and I saw the way that that transformed everything. But is that good or bad? But mostly bad, the way you portray it in the book. Are you saying there was something good about that? Too? Yeah, I do. Huh. I thought like the first part of it's supposed to be kind of good. 
Well, it's been a few weeks since I read it. And I, like I said, I actually kept me up at night. I read it in like two or three nights, and I'm a slow reader because it's just such a compelling yarn. So I apologize if I've forgotten things. No, well, but do I... you th- you think believing in things that can't be proved? Prove you think there's some value in that? I do. I, I'm not saying well, no. I disagree with you. By the no, way, no, no, no. I'm not. That's not. I'm not saying that necessarily. I'm saying part of why I wrote this book. It's because of this debate that I hear with like Dawkins or Sam Harris and against like Bible thumpers or something, mm-hmm. you know, it's like believers and non-believers, logic, illogic. And, I, you know, my husband and I argue about this all the time because he loves Sam Harris, but um, <laughs> <laughs> loved his TED talk. Uh, big argument. Um and, you know, I went to divinity school. I have friends who are very Christian um, who or, or who are Muslim who have talked to me about their experiences and their beliefs. And I think it's valid. I think it's totally valid. I think it's a valid path to these transcendent divine experiences or a way to connect with the cosmic or a way to connect with society or connect with people. So holding up like bad apples or weird ideas like that represents the whole thing. It's... um, there's a term for it, but I can't think of what it is. But it's unfair. like it's yeah, it's unfair. I, I so for me, part of writing this book was to show like, you know, people act like you're, you know, people who believe in crazy things are idiots. But I don't think we were idiots. Hmm. I think that's really, really, really interesting. Um, and you have <laughs> you standing. Idiot. <laughs> no, 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 no. You have the standing to make this uh, to 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 explore these themes because. You've studied it academically, and you've lived it. So um, I think it's, uh, I'm totally open to it. It's so interesting every time Sam comes up because um, yeah, I, I know a lot of people who love him and a lot of people who have strong negative feelings about him. And um, I actually more know him as a guy. Right. Um, we don't talk about the controversial stuff so much. Yeah. Um, uh, and as a guy, he's like incredibly warm and um, – He's the one who introduced me to my meditation teacher. And um, so there's a lot of, I have a lot of personal affection for him. But, and I, but, you know, I listen to his podcast and he's fighting with people. And and, um, that's just not the Sam that I know. Yeah. I will say, when I met him in person, I liked him a lot more. When I read his, when I was reading his books, I was like irate. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're not alone. And I I think he he certainly knows that. Yeah. Uh, I got it. We all have to make a living. (laughs) (laughs) Um, this has been amazing talking to you thank you very much thank Um, you for having me it's an absolute pleasure Um, let me just remind people of the name of the book Greetings from Utopia Park Surviving a Transcendent Childhood it is just out um, and a fascinating read and uh, your publicist is actually making happier faces at me than she was at you for you know saying you didn't have to read it (laughs) Um, thank you very much Claire All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.